plenty to talk about this morning, including more revelations on the money laundering front. On the panel this morning, Global BC's Keith Baldry and the Vancouver Sun's Vaughn Palmer. Later in the show, we'll hear from the BC Green Party leader, Andrew Weaver. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics with Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome to Inside Politics on Radio NL from a sunny Kamloops. Although the city is waking up from another wildfire scare this morning. Pleasure to be welcomed as always uh, by Global BC's Keith Baldry and the Vancouver Sun's Vaughn Palmer. Gentlemen, welcome. Hi, Shane. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Keith, uh, why don't we start with you? Uh, Global had uh, probably one of the most explosive stories in the political front this week, a one-two punch from you guys on that uh, money laundering story. Uh, Fred Pinnock, the former commander of that integrated legal gaming enforcement team, coming out with some uh, pretty serious allegations uh, that a blind eye was turned to money laundering and that his team was prevented from investigating aspects of it in casinos. Uh, explosive allegations here, yeah? aimed at both the, the former B.C. Liberal government and the RCMP. Uh, and again, his uh, his account, the, the, the second story we had was actually, I thought, more alarming, where he talked about a loan shark, a well-known loan shark being identified in the River Rock Casino. And the point, his team being pointedly told, ignore the, not only do not bother this person, but they took the person uh, to a part of the casino that was beyond scrutiny so to ensure that he could operate uh, with impunity and without uh, any, uh, any uh, scrutiny or, or enforcement. So it's, uh, it, it's, it's not entirely new, uh, I have to say. I mean, these, these allegations have been, have been made and continue to be made for some time now. But obviously, uh, he painted a picture of uh, willful blindness on the part of so many people, including the RCMP, and uh, which were getting their, from their point of view, their their uh, pointers and, and guidance from the government itself. And it's uh, it's another uh, reminder that the Wild West uh, saga of uh, gam- gaming in, in B.C. took on new levels that uh, were just unimaginable, I think, a few years ago. And, of course, all of this is sort of ever since the German report has been feeding into a frenzy from the public, I think, uh, who wants to see somebody called on the carpet or somebody's to determine, you know, who screwed up, who's responsible for this. The German report, obviously not a fault-finding report. Uh, Vaughn, does this thing, has it reached a critical mass? Do you think it will reach a critical mass where the government will have little choice but to launch such an inquiry? Um, I don't think the government will launch an inquiry. I think David Eby has already provided, and John Horgan have provided pretty good explanations for why they chose not to go that way. Um, I had an interesting exchange with one of the Liberals this week. Um, I sent him a note saying, is this the same Fred Panic, who, if you Google him, is uh, the life partner of Naomi Yamamoto? who was cabinet minister in the last government. I got a note back from a senior liberal saying, yes, it is. And I went, what's he saying about the government that his wife was a part of or that his partner was a part of? I mean, that's kind of an aspect of this that hasn't been explored. I Mm. haven't talked to Pinnock, so I don't know uh, whether or not he has an explanation on that point or not. It hasn't received a lot of attention, but I guess I would say, yeah. I mean, I think there's still... The Liberals still have a lot of explaining to do on this file, and they've done very badly. I think the government's reasons for not going to a public inquiry uh, make sense. Uh, Public inquiries take an enormous amount of time. They get in the way of the police doing their job. EB has pointed out that that by asking German to step into this and do it essentially as a private review, 
and no fault finding, German was able to get access to everybody he needed to talk to. Mm. You go to a public inquiry, it is like a trial, and what you end up doing is having to get court orders and subpoenas. Everybody gets a lawyer. It can take forever. We've seen some very unproductive public inquiries in this province, and I think as I said, for that reason, I agree with what E.B. has said, uh, what Horgan has said about why they chose not to do a public inquiry. I think there's a lot of I think there's a lot of ignorance around public inquiries. I think there's a there's a tendency for a lot of people to think it's a it's a magic elixir. It's a it's a, a the, the solution to all the problems. Just have a public inquiry. What could go wrong? It's, it's public. It's an inquiry. You ask people questions. But Vaughn's correct. Uh, we've had a couple of court rulings that is, of establish the rule that any public inquiry, anybody uh, brought in front of a public inquiry is basically entitled to a taxpayer-funded lawyer who is paid to gum up the works to ensure that his or her client never testifies. And we saw that problem with the the public inquiry into the whole bingo gate scandal uh, that engulfed the BC NDP in the 1990s. Uh, The Liberals came into office in 2001 when that inquiry was still in the way. And they shut it down. Jeff Plant, the Attorney General, shut it down because he said it was completely unproductive, even though it was probably going to shed some bad light on their chief political enemies, the NDP. He said this thing was making no progress whatsoever in the courtroom because lawyers were simply having procedural arguments for the entire time the inquiry sat and no witnesses were actually heard. So I agree with Juan. I'd be surprised if a public inquiry is called here. Yeah, and I agree with you pretty much, but I do think there is a hunger from the public to call somebody to account, and whether that dies off or not, I don't know. Well, David Eby made a good point. He was asked that in, in the in the first news conference of the German report, and he said, well, you know, the, the previous guy the former VC liberals, they were fired by the public. The public fired yeah. them from, from power. So they paid a price in that they no longer have uh, political power in this, in this province. Uh, Vaughn, uh, you mentioned the political reaction. The BC Liberals, you said, uh, not didn't do a terribly good job coming out of the gate. We had Jazz Joe Hall the day of. We had Andrew Wilkinson the day after. We've had Rich Coleman since. Uh, have we heard anything? And Anton. Yeah, Suzanne Anton. Well, they've, they've been terrible at it. And, uh, look, they're going to be ex- trying to explain themselves on this for a long time to come. I mean, I think that's the other reason the government doesn't think a public inquiry uh, is necessary. The political damage is already done. Uh, the other thing I just wanted to say, because I've, I've had an awful lot of email on this ever mm-hmm. since I... I wrote a piece explaining EB's reasons for not having a public inquiry. Oh, well, you want to let the Liberals say, off the hook. They, they, this, people want to see the Liberals in chains dragged off to prison. <laughs> yeah. the, the point I've made on that is that a public inquiry cannot do that. They cannot lay charges. They cannot send people to jail. They can get in the way of the police investigating someone. Uh, again, EB and... German at that press conference on the 27th of June said there are two significant RCMP investigations going on here. One of the reasons German was careful with his report and held it up for a while was not to get in the way of that. So the way to send people to jail is to give the evidence to the police to appoint a special prosecutor and turn the matter over to the courts. A public inquiry won't do any of that. In fact, might get in the way of doing that. Keith, do you think that, that we could go down that special prosecutor avenue or no? Uh, I don't see that. I think the RCMP investigation is going to be focusing on um, on uh, the actual um, money launderers, people tied up in drug trafficking and such. I don't think it's going to reach into the political realm. Now, I could be wrong, but I, I'd be surprised 
if we got into the political realm of an RCMP investigation into wrapped up in this whole thing, I think it's going to be very much focused on the criminals active in casinos. Do Does Rich Coleman take damage on this enough to force Wilkinson to kind of put him at arm's length? I mean, he kind of is now, but... Well, he already is. Yeah. And I think, uh, I think Coleman sort of checked out the, uh, the provincial scene. He really wasn't much of a player in the last uh, session. I don't think he's going to be much in the, in the fall session if he's still there. I mean, he's still talking about running for, uh, to be mayor of Surrey. And I think he's very active on that front. I'm not sure what decision he's going to make there, but he's basically, I think, done with the provincial scene uh, for all intents and purposes. Vaughn? Yeah, I think that's true, and I, I still, after this report, have trouble imagining why the hell he thinks he's got a shot of getting elected mayor of Surrey. <laughs> I think he's provided anybody running against him out there with a hell of a lot to shoot at. Um, the other thing, yeah, Keith said about whether or not you know, where those police investigations are going to go. Another point that Peter German made, because he's a lawyer and an expert in money laundering, right? That's what that's the reason he was brought in. Yep. He made the point that based on what he has seen so far, just to produce the criminal evidence for a single charge of money laundering would take a team of forensic accountants. I think Keith told me the other day there's never been a, prosec- a successful prosecution for money laundering in this country. It is an easy charge to make, a very difficult charge to prove. So there is an awful lot of police work here that has not that certainly wasn't done by Peter German. He, he, he got a glimpse of the problem. He gave us an overall sense. But to actually have criminal charges laid and be successful, there is an awful lot more work that needs to be done here. And it's not been a good couple of weeks for the B.C. Liberals. We'll talk about uh, land sales under the former government uh, with Keith and Vaughn after a quick break here on Inside Politics on Radio NL. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. For Kamloops Computer Center, you're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Welcome back. We're talking to Vaughn Palmer and Keith Baldry. Uh, guys, the Auditor General of this province slapping the hands of the former B.C. Liberal government this week on land sales, basically saying they couldn't even meet market value and were done uh, to uh, basically even uh, balance the books of the day. Uh, the knee-jerk to reaction to this one, Vaughn, would be in the middle of a real estate frenzy where everybody's making huge money on, on selling their property or the back and forth. Uh, this government couldn't even reach market value. How do you, how do, you do that? Well, the Auditor General does have an explanation for that. It's an interesting one. It, it goes back to 2015. Uh, the New Democrats got their hands on a on an appraisal of a piece of property or 12, 14 parcels of property out in the Burke Mountain area of Coquitlam. And what they found then uh, was that the government had sold the land to a single developer for $85 million, and it had in hand an appraisal that said the land was worth $128 million. That raised the whole issue of how the government was handling land sales. So liberals were selling off land in order to try to balance the budget. That's what happened. So Auditor General looked into all this, and she concluded that most of the sales that the government did had at least hit the target. Uh, for revenue, but that this one was a, a major outlier, and she essentially faulted the government for the way they handled the sale. She said, instead of essentially ensuring a level playing field for the bidding, they took a grab bag of bids. Some would-be buyers bid just on individual parcels of land, some bid for the whole package, and I think because it was a rush job, the government awarded it to a single bidder, and that's why they missed the target, raised value. They missed the target, by the way, by $43 million, which 
change. There's an awful lot of people out there that, you know, $43 million isn't a lot on a $50 billion mm-hmm. budget, but it's an awful lot of money to many people that are looking for a grant or an increase uh, from the government. Uh, Keith, was the Auditor General bang on when she sort of made a recommendation there should be more accountability here? I mean, just based on if uh, we all look back in the day, the Christie Clark government got a lot of political capital out of balancing the books, but at what means? Well, you know, at, at the time, I remember was, uh, a lot of people questioning whether this was the proper way to balance the budget by selling off assets. Uh, and and uh, Carol Bellringer, the, the Auditor General, concluded that, by and large, the government actually exceeded its revenue target here in terms of, of land sales. But uh, the, the Burke Mountain was a big miss. I mean, as Von Rota called him on it, it was an anomaly, but it was a big anomaly. And it, it was a, a, a real lost uh, portion of revenue. And I still think the question remains whether or not um, a government uh, should try to balance its budget uh, partly in in disposing of assets that can be valuable, uh, that can remain valuable uh, for years to come. But uh, the government's response, the liberals' response at the time was, well, look, uh, governments are always disposing of assets all the time. We're always selling things. That one, though, that particular period of time was a, sort of a ramped-up activity, and I'm not sure it's really good public policy to continue that uh, on an ongoing basis just to continue to selling things off. Uh, to make money uh, today without realizing the long-term value of some of those things you're, you're disposing of. Yeah, I concur. Uh, let's squeeze another topic in here to the bottom of the hour. Uh, do you want to talk about proportional representation? We're, yes. <laughs> we're 13 days into the campaign officially. Uh, just yesterday, uh, we learned there's an official yes-no side on day 12 of the campaign, uh, which uh, signals sort of a second starting gun, I guess, as it were. Yeah. Uh, Keith, uh, what's your read on this thing? It's, uh, the, the, the two sides that were chosen uh, were, are no surprise, uh, and uh, Bill Tillman and Maria, forget her last name is... Uh, Tilbrinskaya. Yeah, she's on the, on the yes side, Bill Tillman on the no side. Uh, their groups are going to be given a half million dollars each to spend, and they can raise another $200,000 on top of that. Uh, I don't think you're going to see or hear a lot of activity on this front. Right now, uh, talking to both of them yesterday, they want to save their energy until basically September, uh, after the summer break. Uh, that's when you're going to see, uh, I think, probably a bit of a frenzy of ad buys, uh, different types of messaging that are going to come from both groups as they both try to engage a public that right now I don't think is really spending a lot of time thinking about electoral systems and, and how you vote for politicians. But uh, there's going to be put a lot of information be put in front of the voters uh, come uh, after Labor Day as the run-up to the vote uh, of mail-in ballot in the fall, and uh, it's it's going to be fascinating to see how these two uh, sort of square off against each other. Yeah, Vaughn, uh, what's your take on sort of a delayed start to the start? Well, yeah, I think the after Labor Day is the the campaign will get hot. The thing that appears to me at the moment is the yes side. It looks to me is simply going to campaign that proportional representation is a good thing. Look at the countries around the world that use it. First past the post is unfair, and really concentrate on the choice of systems. Uh, the no side will, you know, make the counter argument, but it strikes me the no side has a second issue that may end up working for them. That is that the deck is stacked, the questions are unfair, uh, the whole process is contrived in order to give the result the NDP wants, and that it's a rush job. And to me, looking I, like that's the area where obviously I have a concern as well, and I think you can make the case, but. 
it looks to me that the the no side is really going to try to push that idea because it's essentially a second issue for them. They can say, well, you know, maybe it would be good to have another referendum on this issue, but this one's unfair, unlike the two in the past. And, and the no side also, I think, has a, an edge here in that it's going to be a, a month-long mail-in ballot campaign. Yeah. And people, I've known Bill Tillman since we were university students together, and I have to tell you, Bill Tillman got his start partly as a mail, a direct mail specialist fundraiser for the NDP. He mm. knows how to uh, run a direct mail campaign, and that's what this referendum is. It's a direct mail campaign. You've got to mail your ballot in. You're not going to a polling station, and Tillman's got a lot of experience in that, and I think that gives him an edge over his opponent. Uh, again, we we have this uh, the writings requirement removed. Uh, it's not sixty percent plus one. It's fifty percent plus one. Uh, it occurs to me that that the one of the questions here is, or one of the things that may frame this debate is, especially for for the yes side, is how do they how do they get people off uh, status quo, which is hard to do. People tend mm-hmm. to like what they know uh, when they campaign. Is, will that be a problem? You think, Vaughn? I do think that'll be a problem. I also think the yes side is going to have trouble answering specific questions. Uh, we've already seen some of this happening. The yes side will say, oh, well, you know, look at how this system works around the world. Well, you know, two of the three options that David Eby has put on the ballot here aren't in use anywhere in the world. So you can talk hypothetically about how they might work, but you can't really point to any examples of how they work. The system that is in use around the world is mixed-member proportional, and that's the one that some people prefer. But you can't answer necessarily specific questions about that either, because David Eby is withholding a dozen key aspects of MMP to be decided after the referendum. Someone can say to you, oh, well, look at how they do it in New Zealand. That's not necessarily how we'll do it here in British Columbia, because EB has deliberately withheld key questions like how some of the mixed members will be picked, what local writings will look like, how many seats the interior will lose. All that will be decided after the referendum, not before. And again, with the writing requirement removed, Keith, I asked Bill Thielman this yesterday, from a strategic perspective of of going around the province and trying to convince voters, uh, strategically, do you concentrate your efforts on southern Vancouver Island and metro Vancouver, I guess sort of shades of the NDP strategy the last provincial election, or or not? Well, I think uh, Tillman is going to make a concerted effort to get everybody outside of Metro Vancouver and Victoria to vote no, because it's not in their best interest. They lose regional representation, even though the SI will, will, will try to counter that argument. But the bulk of the voters exists, or reside in Metro Vancouver and uh, the capital region. He's got to be, find a way to connect uh, with those as well. But uh, again, I think the yes, the yes side has an uphill battle educating people, as you mentioned, Shane, people like the status quo. They're not going to think long and hard about change. Uh, and it's a complicated change as well. And it basically, this is all going to come down to which side can motivate people to actually fill out the ballot, put it in an envelope, and put it in the mail. Uh, and a lot of people don't even, when was the last time anybody mailed a letter? It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's sort of an old-fashioned thing to do. Uh, people email each other. They do everything electronically. Sending an envelope with a stamp uh, into the mailbox is not something that everybody does all the time. You mean we can't vote on this thing on Twitter? <laughs> <laughs> Although we did vote in the mail-in referendum in the HST, which had its own problems, if I remember. There was yep. tons of mail-in ballots lying around apartment lobbies all <laughs> over the place. There was 
was no motivational problem with HS. Yeah, well, a completely different People issue. They were right? so mad and so ticked off, they could hardly wait to send their ballot. Yeah, a lot easier to make an argument about tax these days than it is about how we vote, unfortunately. Exactly. <laughs> okay, guys, let's take a break to the bottom of the hour, get caught up on the news, and uh, we'll pick up our conversation with both Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer on Inside Politics on Radio NL right after this. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. From both sides of the floor, this is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Good morning. Welcome back to Inside Politics. We're talking to Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer this morning. Guys, Greyhound uh, making a lot of news this week. On Monday, it kicked it off, saying it's going to wind down operations here in Western Canada. That prompted a self-proclaimed angry Minister of Transportation, Claire Trevena, to convene sort of, I guess, a summit uh, on Greyhound with her fellow uh, province uh, colleagues uh, from Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba, which resulted in uh, basically a letter to the federal government asking for some money. Uh, Keith, not not much in the way options here, I assume. Well, I'm shocked that provinces get together and decide, you know what, let's ask Ottawa for money. I mean, that's uh, that's generally the modus operandi of, uh, of a lot of provincial governments. Uh, they get together and want Ottawa to foot the bill. Uh, it's an interesting pickle because uh, you can make the case uh, in B.C. B.C. funds a ferry system. We subsidize a ferry system to the tune of $200 million a year, which which allows people on islands and coastal communities to commute or, or to, to travel from community to community via a ferry that the taxpayer helps subsidize. We subsidize a, a public transit system. We've, the provincial taxpayer builds the infrastructure for transit or, or helps build it with municipal governments and federal governments. And then we give about $150, $130 million a year to uh, public transit, to BC Transit, to fund bus service in a lot of uh, urban centers. So it's not completely out of the question to, to at least ask, should a provincial government therefore subsidize a bus service for rural communities? In this case, the Greyhound says we're losing $35,000 a day. Uh, you do the math, and then we're talking probably in excess of $100 million required to subsidize a bus service, a 100% subsidy uh, for a bus service in uh, in British Columbia. So I, I can see Claire Trevena balking at a subsidy off the bat, but if there's no solution found, uh, I don't see how a government necessarily is going to strand everybody with no bus service in a lot of these communities around uh, British Columbia, even though it's interesting, you know, the communities that are affected here are not NDP communities, they're BC Liberal communities in terms of which ridings or which MLAs they supported in the last election, and that may be a factor to consider here as well. Yeah, uh, and to your point, BC Transit uh, running the bus down Highway 16, the Highway of Tears up in Prince George. Uh, Vaughn, uh, what do you think? W- which direction should she go here? Yeah, I mean, look, the first thing, obviously, ask Ottawa, ask Ottawa for the money, uh, and they've done that. Um, feds are saying they're not going to do it, but we'll see whether they step in or not. The BC Transit, is, as Keith just pointed out, runs local bus services here in the capital and um, all over the province. Uh, Translink gets a provincial subsidy in and around Metro Vancouver. So now those are those are metro, urban, to some degree, services, not long-haul bus services between communities. But th- there probably is a model. Um, the 
BC Transit, the government would sooner probably not take it on themselves through a Crown Corporation because that could be expensive. Uh, at the moment, I think the most likely outcome is that they will look at other private operators and see if there are private operators that will step forward and bid on particular services. There's already been coverage here in the Victoria Times Colonist saying that Wilson's Transportation is willing to consider the island runs. Uh, perhaps there are northern uh, interior communities where local bus companies would be willing to take on some service. But I think at the end of the day, you're probably going to have to having to, to subsidize it. We subsidize ferries. We subsidize urban bus systems. I can't imagine you could necessarily do long-haul ones between rural communities without some sort of subsidy. Uh, a story I wanted to t- discuss with you guys. Uh, we're having an unfolding situation up the North Thompson near Clearwater, uh, North Thompson Provincial Park. Uh, essentially, I think it's day five now of being shut down. Uh, campers turned away, reservation or no reservation, uh, being occupied by uh, a First Nations protest group protesting the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which has a right-of-way through that park. Uh, two aspects of this sort of strike me, and uh, the first of which, Keith, is the the sort of uh, argument or dispute within First Nations themselves. This is a First Nations group, but uh, Simp First Nation up uh, up in Clearwater area says, hey, listen, this is our traditional territory. This is our land. We're the title holders. Uh, we They've disavowed these protesters and, and, and kind of chided them for not even sort of consulting them on the move, which sort of kind of an insight into the conflict there. Yeah, so, I mean, we have all over B.C. overlapping claims from First Nations. There's 203 First Nations in B.C. Uh, 103% of the land base is under claim. So there is a lot of uh, overlapping claims from, from rival First Nations uh, that disagree on uh, who actually has claim, has title to that land. And that's one instance we're seeing playing out there. The other thing we're seeing, I think, is, you know, again, the, the protests, crowd out there has to be careful of, uh, of picking your spots because one way to turn off public support for your cause is to inconvenience the public. It's one thing to hold a protest you know, in front of the legislature or in, uh, you know, in, a, in a park or something that, um, that the, the public just basically accesses all the time. Uh, it's quite another one uh, to hold it in a park where people are losing their, their registrations, their, their reservations for camping, uh, just like it is in, in Metro Vancouver. Downtown Vancouver, we've seen protests in downtown Vancouver that tie up city streets. And if you want to see anger and frustration amongst people, you know, start tying up uh, Georgia and, and Howe uh, streets <laughs> in downtown Vancouver during commute time. Uh, yeah. That just enrages people and turns public opinion against whatever cause you happen to be protesting uh, for or against, and that's uh, it's something that I think the, the Kinder Morgan protesters are going to have to keep in mind going forward, because right now they don't represent the majority of public opinion, and when they engage in stunts like this, that public support diminishes even further. Now, the other aspect of this, Vaughn, I want to put in front of you, is sort of the sensitive nature in which politicians uh, react to uh, sort of the First Nations aspect of the issue. Uh, there is a situation unfolding up there, and there's an argument to be made, uh, you know, where do we draw the line between peaceful protest and the right of people to use uh, what is a provincial park. Uh, the mayor of Clearwater doesn't want to talk about it. Uh, we went to George Heyman, who his office says he was unavailable for a number of days. Uh, then suddenly it was David Eby's problem to respond to. I got an email late last night saying, nope, nope, sorry, not David Eby. It's actually Mike Farnworth that's got to respond to this thing. And Mike Farnworth is very busy, can't talk to you right now. And uh, maybe I'm reading into it, but it seems like a bit of a buck passing there. No, no, look, I went through this with uh, the New Democrats about a month ago on a similar situation. There is an encampment that's been in place for 10 years in the path of the 
natural gas pipeline that TransCanada Pipelines is trying to build to Kitimat to feed the new LNG terminal. There's no project in the province the New Democrats want more than that LNG terminal. I try to find out from them, what are you going to do about this encampment? It's been there almost 10 years. Uh, the Liberals wouldn't deal with it. You're not going to get the pipeline through unless you deal with it. Well, we're working behind the scenes. We're talking to First Nations leaders. We're consulting them. We're meeting with them. We're trying. They're trying to see if a new approach will remove the encampment. But the last thing they want to do, and I understand this at a certain level, it's a new government. The last thing they want to do is say anything public that will make it worse, that will provoke First Nations into digging in. Uh, They're hoping that if they work behind the scenes, they can quietly resolve it. We'll see if they can. Uh, as I say, that one in the uh, northwest, it's um, sort of south of Smithers, if you imagine that on the map, remote region. Uh, we'll see if they can get it out of the way, but some of these projects aren't going to go ahead unless they do. And you're right to flag this, though, Shane, because uh, this uh, sort of um, pussyfooting around uh, the issue is going to continue on other protests that involve First Nations. Uh, this government is nervous about uh, rocking the boat and alienating First Nations in any way. And again, First Nations are split about this stuff. Stuart Phillip has one point of view, Grand Chief Stuart Phillip, who, does, who opposes basically everything. And the government is afraid of him. And uh, we'll see again when push comes to shove with some of these projects when action has to be taken to ensure they go ahead, whether the government actually has the stomach to do it. All right. Uh, quick last topic. It just came down an email now. I'm not sure if you guys have seen this or not. But uh, uh, from the Ministry of Agriculture, this has been a bit of a contentious issue forming up in the advent up to legalization of, of cannabis. But uh, according to the Ministry of Agriculture moments ago, local and First Nations governments will now be able to prohibit cannabis production in ALR lands within their communities unless it's grown in ways to preserve the productive capacity of agricultural land. So it's got to be in an open field, in a structure that has a soil base, uh, that was uh, in a structure that's either fully constructed or under construction, and in an existing licensed operation. So an interesting development as we're talking, Vaughn. Yep. Yeah, no, it's, uh, and again, it's in keeping with the, the, one of the basic concepts this government has adopted is to allow local governments to decide whether cannabis, how, how active cannabis is going to be within their communities in terms of dispensaries and production. And in this case, First Nations is added as well. So it's, uh, it's not a surprise, but it's, it's one thing that's been brewing for some time because there's, a, there's been some big proposals for huge operations on ALR land for these production facilities. And it's got a lot of locals upset because of the smell, the, the odors, the, just the, the presence that can have in their community. So now uh, it's no surprise that uh, local city councils are going to have the ability to shut these things down uh, before they get going. Vaughn, final word to you. If the smell is a problem for you, have you ever driven by the mushroom farm? Mushroom? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so very, cause, man, yeah. it brought me to my knees the first time I experienced that. And there's also what a big uh, cattle yard near uh, near Kelowna that generates controversy too. So I don't know why you'd have a different rule for growing tomatoes in greenhouses than you would for growing cannabis in greenhouses. But I guess they decided to have one. You guys are both like mushrooms. You're both fun guys. <laughs> very, very good. Very good. <laughs> uh, Keith uh, Vaughn, always a pleasure. Thank Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Okay. Uh, that's it for Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer. We'll talk to them, of course, in future shows here on Inside Politics on Radio Now. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, and then on the other side, uh, Green Party leader Andrew Weaver joins us. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. Keeping you informed from both sides. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford.
Good morning and welcome. Real treat to be joined uh, by the leader of the BC Green Party, Andrew Weaver. Andrew, welcome. Good morning and thanks for having me on, sir. Yeah, it's been a while since we chatted. Always good to have you on. Uh, I did want to talk to you about the money laundering thing, but something's just popped up I want to address first. I don't know if you have any insight into this, but I know that uh, you and I talked about this a few weeks back uh, concerning ALR lands and the ability of cannabis to be grown on them. Uh, the Ministry of Agriculture has just put out a notice about five minutes ago saying they're giving the power to local and First Nation governments uh, to ban cannabis production and agricultural land reserve within their communities unless it's grown in ways that preserve the productive capacity of agricultural land. So it's got to be in an open field. Whatever structure's there has to, has a, uh, has to have a soil base. Uh, that structure has to be either fully constructed or under-constructed within uh, required permits in place by July 13th and in an existing licensed operation. Uh, your, your take on that? Uh, you know, I, I haven't, it's not my file. I, I haven't spent a lot of time on Canada's file. It's uh, Adam Olson, my colleague's file. I, I um, you know, leaving, it's, it looks to me, I, I have to go into details, but have they provided the guidance necessary to ensure that uh, local governments have the information they need? I, you know, I, I, I'm pretty confident that there, you know, many people don't want, like, pot fields in their backyard. Uh, but but I, I, don't, I haven't had that chance to look. So sure, yeah, I, no, fair I, enough. I think it's really important that it is regularly regulated appropriately, but I also think it's important that uh, we protect the existing growers who uh, have a little cottage industry out there already. So I'd have to take a look before I can Yeah, I just thought from a, from a perspective from your end, I know you've done some work on, uh, for example, uh, big big houses and, right. and stuff in ALR land, and then, of course, from the food production capacity, I know there was concerns from the Green Party. Exactly, so. exactly. I mean, this is, we, we know uh, local governments have the ability to regulate big houses on agricultural land. It's a, it's a profound problem in the Richmond area where land is being taken up. A prime, you know, ocean uh, delta land, really fertile soil, being taken up with, you know, 20,000 square foot homes. But who needs that? They're essentially, you know, not unrelated in some cases. So the scandals we're hearing emerge, which is probably the next one that we'll talk about. So so, so when local governments fail to, to actually step, uh, do what uh, really needs to be done, uh, there is a role for the province to step in. So, so I'd have to take a look, but I, I, I'm, I'm Concerned a little bit, but not uh, too much over the, the granting the uh, local governments the ability as opposed to uh, and the province setting some firm rules. All right, fair enough. Uh, Andrew, I did want to talk to you about, and the reason I brought you on was was money laundering. We've heard a lot from the Liberals and the NDP on this, uh, and ever since the German report, and then there's been a, a series of stories since then, a couple uh, really interesting ones from Global this week with some further allegations, uh, and the question's been raised, and I, and I think that uh, you can make a case for that there's a public hunger to kind of call somebody on the carpet and say, you know, this person or persons is responsible, uh, they should be punished. Uh, but then again, as Keith and Vaughn were pointing out earlier in the show, uh, a public inquiry can be a fraught-laden process, taking up years and tons of taxpayer dollars, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, from your side of things, is it time to go down the public inquiry road or no? We've been watching this very, very carefully. Look, there are a ton of outstanding questions that need to be addressed. Uh, you know, we look at the, as you mentioned, two global reports that came out. This, the accusations, uh, they're very serious, very, very serious. And they go, you know, they're not, uh, uh, they're, they haven't been addressed yet. So, you know, I, I've 
had a, done, done a number of interviews on this topic. I, you know, we're we're contemplating at this stage. We want to uh, see what else is coming down the pipeline in the next couple of months. So I think we've only begun to see the tip of the iceberg. Uh, there are certainly uh, the BC Liberals have an awful lot of explaining to do because uh, the, the the allegations are very serious to uh, the decision making process and how it was uh, involving the BC Liberals at this stage. Though you know, we, we let's just let some more information come out. I, I could see us. Uh, being quite, you know, this level of concern growing dramatically because I, I, I do think, you know, based on what we're seeing, you know, the interview with the former head of the RCMP was fired, uh, the uh, illegal gaming head. Uh, this is outrageous what he was saying about uh, the, 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 the role of uh, government. And, you know, I was uh, listening to a Sydney Standard show on CKNW a while back at local Vancouver station. And, uh, you know, a caller said he was a, a, a doorman at the River Rock Casino for five years. And the, and the allegations he made directly to a liberal, about a liberal, liberal sitting liberal cabinet maker at the time, suggesting that, uh, you know, he was treated preferentially. It, it's just. The whole issue is is something that I think needs to be explored in more detail. Um, let's let the uh, German, uh, the subsequent report start to play out. Uh, hopefully something in the fall we'll hear. And, uh, you know, if, if, if the floodgates open, we might have to go down the direction of a public inquiry. But at this stage, I think we should hold off a bit. Okay, so you don't think the floodgates have opened quite yet? Because the one thing I do if notice I is... I think the, the cranks are turning, and there, there's, like, there's certainly leaks in the dike, uh, in the gate, uh, whether those leaks continue to grow, we have to give a little bit more time, I think. All right, fair enough. Uh, Andrew, I did want to get a measure from you as well on a story that's unfolding up in North Thompson. The North Thompson Provincial Park has been taken over by a First Nations uh, pipeline protest group calling themselves the Little House Warriors. Uh, day five of the park being closed. Uh, campers were uh, were taken out of the park, have since been turned away, reservation or no reservation. We do have a right in this country for peaceful protests, for sure. But uh, And I know you're no pipeline fan, but, but uh, is there a line there where people People should be able to use a provincial park. So yeah, yeah I don't want to wade into to, to, to that issue. Um, I, I, it's not. I'm not a. It's not pro or anti pipeline. I'm profoundly troubled about the substance diluted bitumen that is proposed to go in the pipeline. And you know, it's ironic that immediately before us getting talking, there was some yet another advertisement for the government of Alberta arguing the you know extraordinary double speak that we need to uh, build a pipeline to have a climate plan, which just makes no sense. And and essentially misleading because uh, uh, it's factually incorrect to say that we're <laughs> we need a pipeline, uh, but that won't increase production. That's just factually incorrect. When you triple capacity, you need to increase production to uh, to to to, uh, to feed that that line so it's just this is the problem is that the public is being sold all sorts of misleading information uh, we've now got a government of uh, federal and provincial buying into an asset that the uh, kinder morgan was, was in my view uh, trying to divest itself from because uh, of the fact that it's uh, it's an old leaky pipeline and the market has changed dramatically no people don't are, aren't scrambling for the high sulfur bitumen. It's a, it's a, it's a, a low-value product. It's the reason why we get paid less for it. And uh, so, you know, it's sad that it's come to this, where we have, uh, instead of at the time when the time should have been done, during the intervention process, we're having an after-the-fact protest, whether it be ha- Greenpeace activists hanging off the, the Ironworkers Memorial Bridge in Vancouver, or now the uh, First Nations uh, uh, group that are in the uh, provincial park there. Okay, but do, is there a responsibility in those protesters to, see, in one case, respect the public, and in the other case, not cause um, other people to risk their lives to protect their own safety? I, I uh, uh, as an elected uh, leader, I, I 
will reiterate that for in our from our position it's critical we have law and we encourage people to uh, follow the law and we do not ever condone actions that are not in accordance with the law so that that's that's a line of the you know firm position we have uh, that doesn't mean people won't do it uh, because there is a level of frustration out there we live in a civil society and and and, and you know peaceful protest is part of who we are uh, you know at some when the line is crossed and you and you uh, uh, break the law, I think the law has a duty and responsibility to act. It's most unfortunate that we're at this situation now because of the fact that people won't listen to. I know I know it's, it's a different issue in the, in the time of North Thompson and South Thompson region because you're talking about a pipeline, but here in the coast, the, the concern is not so much the pipeline. What it is is the, the diluted bitumen in our coastal waters and the uh, 28-fold increase in tanker traffic, and not of you know, oil, gas, diesel, stuff that can float, but of diluted bitumen, a, a, a substance that uh, in, in environmental conditions would be quite devastating for our region. And, and frankly, it's for something like you know, 20 jobs on the coast once it's built. Uh, meanwhile, it's also uh, hurting the, the branding of the coastal region here as a, as a place for innovation, for, for uh, you know, uh, with its trying to become the greenest city by 2020 in Vancouver's case and so forth. Yeah. Uh, real quick question. We've only got about a minute and a half left, but LNG Canada seems to be check- checking off the boxes and flirting with becoming a pretty viable operation. Uh, concern on your end? Uh, you know, there's multiple problems here. Is LNG Canada is, is a local group, of course. Um, there are five board offices that must approve of it uh, in other jurisdictions. And, you know, while we may think, think that BC is somehow a massive player in the international scene, we are but a small player, a very, very small player. I mean, like Russia has 20 times the entire natural gas reserves of Canada. Iran has even, you know, has a similar amounts. Uh, I could go on and on. Of, uh, we, we're not actually uh, large global producers. With that said, um, you know, LNG Canada can go forward. The BC Green Party is very clear. We are not going to support the repealing of an LNG Income Tax Act. You know, already right now, we are giving away our resources. You know, a decade ago, we were getting $32 and change for $34 for every thousand cubic meters of natural gas. Now we're getting less than three. Uh, the reason why is because the BC Liberals wanted to basically give it away so they could get some income down the road through the LNG Income Tax Act once companies were making profit, and now the BC NDP want to eliminate the LNG income tax. It's just, it's an outrageous giveaway, and uh, I, I, I can't believe that right. uh, people think that it's going to go forward, because, uh, well, we're certainly not supporting it, and uh, good luck to the NDP and BC Liberals working together, so let's just see what, what, how this plays out. All right, Andrew, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Bye-bye. There we go. There's the leader of the BC Green Party, Andrew Weaver, and that's it for today's Inside Politics. Thank you for listening. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL next week. Merritt, 1340 Ashcroft Cash Creek, from CHNL in Kamloops. This is Radio NL, 610 AM, local news now.